As I mentioned earlier, Monday Thursday is a celebration of a number of things taking place on that Monday Thursday, that first one during the Passion Holy Week of Jesus Christ. And one of the central things taking place on that Monday Thursday was a meal. A meal that Jesus ate with his disciples, but also a meal, a new meal, that he gave to them and instituted for them to continue on eating. And as we get to partake in this meal later today, there's so much that Scripture tells us about this meal, so many beautiful and personal and real things happening at this meal, while simultaneously we know this meal is also maybe the one of the most misunderstood meals in the church today. And both of those truths, we won't have time to go over all the things that encompass the Lord's Supper. But for today... In order for us to really understand the essence of what's put before us, this meal, you really have to understand the essence, the heart and core of what this meal replaced, the previous meal. And to understand the previous meal, the reason why Jesus is with his disciples, to understand that at at its heart and core, you have to go back. If you go all the way back to the words that we just looked at, and even actually before, you have to go all the way back to the Israelites in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, as they were facing slavery and brutal oppression, and you have to see how God set them up for deliverance through a series of plagues, and the last one being the climactic event that everything was leading to, the plague. That would be the, the, the straw to break the camel's back, so to speak, to allow Pharaoh to let them go and to deliver the Israelites. It all happened through ten plagues, ten miraculous, ten life-changing plagues. And where it started was plague number one, a plague of blood. Blood that didn't just fill the rivers of Egypt, it was the rivers of Egypt. The H2O molecule that turned into blood coagulation, the hemoglobin, all of that, and, and the Nile River and the estuaries and the streams, they just, they became blood, and the smell was so bad. It was a stench. It was something that Egypt reeked to high heaven. And then it just got worse. After the blood passed, then came frogs like an army of these green frogs just came hopping into Egypt, not just taking over the streets, but taking over the homes and the houses and the buildings, that as you are trying to cook your meal and you open up the drawer for the silverware or the cups or the bowls and staring at you are these two eyes of a frog and it's going to jump right out at you and it's, it's just awful and I can't imagine trying to get any sort of sleep at night with the, with the chirping of literally millions if not more frogs just out at night. It was awful. You couldn't even take a step without probably squishing on one of these frogs between your toes. Disgusting. And then when God allowed them to just die and the Egyptians had piled up these rotting carcasses of frogs in their streets, it wasn't before long that God sent two more fun plagues to the Egyptians. Gnats and flies in quick succession. I hate bugs. I loathe bugs. I detest bugs. And I can only imagine the horror and the swarms what those things must have been like that day. There they are. 
If you were an Egyptian, you wouldn't dare go outside your house without a mask. Like, you would actually want to put a mask over your face because if you breathed in, you were probably going to breathe in these gnats and flies as you're swatting them constantly. So bad. So annoying. And then God let them take their their passing. Only to have that replaced with the fifth plague. Plague of livestock. As Egyptian farmers could only just watch in horror as one by one, suddenly and randomly, their livestock just keeled over and died. Without reason, without warning, devastating, crippling that part of the economy. And then when that was over, then a true plague in our understanding of the sense came on, a plague of boils. Not just on the people, but on the pets, on the animals that were left over, right? You look at them and there's just these boils. You look at your loved ones and you're disgusted because these boils aren't just boils. They're festering boils. There's there's this pus just oozing out of the orifices of these boils. You look at your loved one and you're just disgusted and they say, you think I'm ugly. Take a look in the mirror, buddy. And you look and there it is and it's just awful and it's horrible. Appetites were lost all over Egypt. And then after that subsided came the hail. A hailstorm to put any hailstorm to shame. Hailstorm so violent that it ripped the bark and the branches off of trees. A hailstorm so violent that if you did not make it to shelter right away, whether person or animal, you were killed. You were knocked out and dead by probably more than baseball, maybe maybe softball-sized hailstones that just started to cover the streets and destroy any of the crops. And then after the hail melted, then came the locusts. Back to the bugs again, I guess, huh? Locusts that were so thick, they covered every square foot of Egypt and devoured whatever the hail didn't destroy to the point that we're told in Exodus there was nothing green left in all of Egypt. And then when that was done, God followed it up by a plague of darkness. Probably not darkness what you and I are used to thinking when the sun sets in the evening time and it's nighttime and you know there's enough light around that the, the cells in your eyes can still pick up the, the photons from the light you can still see. No, this was like true darkness. This was pitch black. I can't see my hand in front of my face. I'm in a cave underground. Darkness. Darkness so thick, darkness so dark that the Egyptians did not leave their homes because they could not see where they were going for three days. But for the Israelites, life was very different. For the Israelites, they were completely unfazed and unaffected by all of these plagues. See, back when the Israelites, the Hebrew people, first came to Egypt with Joseph back in the book of Genesis, they were a shepherding people. And back then, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians said, you know, we really kind of think you guys are kind of dirty, kind of gross. We, we really don't want you guys to live with us. But there's this land called Goshen that's right next to our land of Egypt, so you guys can live there. And so for the Egyptians, they were devastated by these plagues, but for the Israelites in Goshen, they were totally fine. But all that was about to change. 
God was about to send one more plague, the granddaddy of them all. A plague that wouldn't just affect a few people, but all people, both Egyptians and Israelites alike. A plague called the plague of the firstborn. Where God said, I will come to Israel and Egypt, to every household, and I will kill the firstborn son of every family. I am the Lord. And if you're a parent, that kind of makes you hold your breath, right? To imagine that you are absolutely powerless to stop an unstoppable force like God from doing what he did, that even if you had Samson-like, Hulk-like strength, there is nothing you could do to prevent the hand of God from coming over the, the bed of your firstborn son and snuffing out his breath as easily as you and I snuff out the flame on a candle. It's petrifying. Which is why it made the meal that those Israelites ate all the more meaningful. It was a meal that the Israelites would savor, not because the flavor and the taste of that meal was just oh so good and out of this world, but because it was a meal that saved them from judgment and calamity. And as you look at the Passover meal, at its heart and core, it revolved around one thing, a lamb. But not just any lamb. A lamb it was a one-year-old male, without blemish, without defect, the best that your flock had to offer. And the life of your firstborn depended on this lamb. Because for your firstborn, for your house to be saved, there had to be a sacrifice, there had to be death. And so this lamb was a substitute. And this lamb you would take into your homes and then before long you would kill it. You would slit its throat and you would take its blood and you would paint it outside the door frame of your house. And then you'd take its flesh, you'd take the lamb's body and you would eat it. It would be the main course of the meal along with some bitter herbs and some unleavened bread. And in this way, when God came that night, he would see the blood of that lamb outside your house and he would, instead of bringing judgment, he would bring salvation. He would pass over that house. Or to say it another way, rescue and salvation came by the literal body and the literal blood of that lamb to save you. And they called that meal the Passover meal. Now for the Jews, the Passover was essentially kind of like a, what, what Easter is for us Christians. It was one of the highest festivals that they celebrated. It was one of the greatest days of their whole year. 
And it was something where you would celebrate it again and again and again, year after year after year, remembering everything that God had done, and especially for new generations, for kids, for grandkids, for every generation, every year, you would slaughter the lambs, you would prepare the meal, you would sit down as a family, and when kids every year would ask, Mom, Dad, why do we do this? Why do we go through killing the lamb? Why do we paint the blood? Why do we eat the food? Why do we do this? And whether they were curious whether they were ignorant, or whether they were just asking so dad would tell them the story year after year. Dads everywhere in in Jewish families would sit down and tell them the story of how God rescued and redeemed them from judgment and destruction. How if they ever questioned God's love for them and God's care for them, that they could say, Look at the blood outside on the doorposts. Look at the food right here. Look at the Passover lamb that was slaughtered instead of the firstborn son. The Passover lamb that was a substitute instead of that firstborn son. It was the greatest meal ever. And so when Jesus is sitting there with his disciples on that Monday, Thursday night, about to celebrate the Passover meal, and they're all hanging out, and they're all waiting for Jesus, the head of the house, you might say, to recite the story of the Passover, recalling the past promises and salvation of God. Instead, Jesus does something completely unexpected, and yet with the simplest of words, he connects the dots for them and us and says, I don't want you to be thinking of this lamb in front of you anymore and its flesh. And he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take and eat. This is my body. And I don't want you to think any more of the blood outside on the doorposts of that lamb. He took the cup, take and drink. This is my blood, and it paints you, and it saves you. And in that way, what Jesus did was he, he showed them what that Passover meal foreshadowed all along. That that meal was not just something for the Israelites to celebrate and take their minds back all the way back to Exodus and all the way looking at God's salvation and how he redeemed them from slavery and oppression in their firstborn, but how it was a meal always pointing ahead to something different, something else, something greater, another lamb, or you might say the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. So when you look at this meal, what do you see? It doesn't really look all that impressive, I know. It, we've got a chiclet-like bread wafer that is pretty tasteless, and then you flip that over and you've got some wine in there, just a little sip, probably not even tasting enough for you to want to serve it at your own house. You'd probably serve something different. Not much on the surface. And when the Jews, when they celebrated the Passover meal, they didn't just look at the appearances. They saw beyond the appearances. 
They didn't just see what it maybe symbolized. They saw what it was, that it was a, a Passover lamb that was literally substituted for them. Just like you and I, we, we know it's more than just what it appears. It, it takes us to our Passover lamb who was literally substituted for us. That, that just as the Israelites were saved by the literal body and the literal blood of that lamb that was killed for them, then why would Jesus, when he institutes a brand new meal to replace this, give us anything less than, anything but his real body and his real blood that saves you? Because when you look at this meal, you also see another thing. You see a need for it. Because this meal also shows us that there's another plague. A plague kind of like the plague of the firstborn in that it didn't just affect the Egyptians. No, it was going to affect the Egyptians and the Israelites. A plague that affects all of us. A plague called sin. And like the plague of the firstborn, if you do nothing, it ends in death and calamity and destruction. But God, like the Israelites, provided a way out. Provided a Passover lamb to be slaughtered. A lamb without blemish. A lamb without defect. The best God had to offer. Jesus Christ. The lamb of God. And by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. He saves you from that plague that would otherwise destroy you. Because God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to die. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to be connected to you, so much so that he gives you his love and maybe the closest we will ever get to him this side of heaven a way that we can actually taste our salvation right here. We are so blessed. I know we don't always think about it. I know it escapes our minds sometimes when we see communion offered at church. But friends, tonight, think about it. We are so blessed to have a meal that is infinitely greater than any meal your mama will ever make for you, any meal that the Jews celebrated. A meal that you will savor, not because the cooking is out of this world and oh so good, but because it saves you. A meal that shows you just how close your God wanted to be with you, close enough that he gave his body, gave his blood with a promise right here for you. A meal that you get to consume God's love for you. A meal that doesn't just point us back to what Jesus did for us this Holy Week to save us from our sins. But a meal that also points ahead to a greater meal still. Not this side of heaven, but the other side.
a banquet, a feast. We'll be around family and friends like when we come and we celebrate this meal, only what's even better is we will celebrate with the living, breathing, walking, talking, real Passover lamb. So with all that being said, friends, today, take and eat and take and drink. The true body and the true blood of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, your Passover lamb, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.